Well, friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to Exodus chapter 15. That's where we're going to be spending the next little bit of time together, Exodus 15 and Exodus 16. Uh, it's a lot of ground to cover, not as much ground as we've been covering in, in, in former sermons. So, uh, so, so we'll see how that goes. It's, it's not a whole lot of ground to cover, but it's action-packed. I'm excited to get into it with you. Last week, uh, last week, Shaka, another elder here, Shaka Mitchell, preached what was the last example of God's great acts of deliverance to save his people from their captivity in Egypt. Everything we covered in Exodus up to that point happened in Egypt with Israel up under the thumb of one of the great powers of their world. And God decided to make himself known to the world through delivering Egypt from this power. And last week we saw the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. It was a climax of the story. And it was a climax that the whole story up to that point had prepared us to celebrate. But the book isn't even half over yet. We reached the climax last week in chapter 14, but but there's still a lot more ground to cover. Just in terms of real estate in the book itself, again, not not even halfway through at this point. Uh, Some folks in our small group this week were reminiscing on the Prince of Egypt as adaptation of the stories we've been covering up until this point in our study of Exodus. That movie ends just on the other side of the Red Sea, right? There's a sort of a flash forward to uh, Moses getting the Ten Commandments, but it's not really a part of the story. I mean, everybody knows where the big, what the big climax is. It's dry land on the other side of the Red Sea. But our story continues. Egypt now fades to the background, and yet Israel keeps marching on. And not only does the story continue from this point, so does the story's main theme. What we've been saying about the main theme of this story up to here is that it's God showing the world who he is. That, that, that yes, it's about Israel and their oppression and their liberation from this oppression. But that that is a case study in who God is, that it's presented to the world as evidence for who the world is ruled by and what they can expect from him. He shows the world who he is by setting his people free. That's what we've said so far. And that theme continues here. But here, here in chapter 15, the story takes an unexpected turn. In a way, you might say Israel jumps out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because in this story, Israel heads into the wilderness. And it's a wilderness in which they will wander for 40 years. 40 years. What I want want us to know today is that this wilderness portion of Israel's story is no diversion. That the God who led them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea leads them still, every step, guiding them, still working his agenda, still setting his people free. In fact, what we're going to see today, we're going to do a flyover of the entire wilderness experience today. But what we see in this wilderness part of Israel's story is a theme that spreads throughout many of the books of the Old Testament and then gets echoed down through the whole story of Israel and then shows up again in the life of Jesus and in the life of the church. It's bigger than just this story. This story happened. It's historical. It's, it, it's part of Israel's unique experience. But it's presented to us so that we can see it show back up again with its themes, with its, 
with, with its main point over and over again throughout the, the, the teaching of the Bible and even in our own lives now. Because like Israel, we are in between. Israel in the wilderness finds themselves between tremendous acts of deliverance by God's power and the promised land that's, that, 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 that's out in front of them. What they want, the object of their hopes, this place to be God's people and to be with him full of milk and honey, all sorts of plenty, that's still out there. And they're in between. And we as Christians have experienced the death and resurrection of Jesus as a deliverance unlike any other. But we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more crying and no more death and no more sin. We are in a wilderness. What we want to see this morning is that God uses in-between times in the lives of his people. This story shows us how and it'll resonate with your experience. God uses even difficult times. I think we could even say, we can make it even stronger than that. We can say, God especially uses difficult times. This text is going to speak to us of God's, quote, testing, or better, even a better word for that, according to one writer, would be God's training of Israel in the wilderness. And as another writer puts it, if the overarching theme is God showing us who he is, if that's what Exodus is about, then the point of the wilderness is that God uses difficulty to make himself known. So what I want us to tackle this morning is, is a couple of questions. And these are questions that are going to be hanging over the hole. These are not main points. These are just big questions I want us to swim around in this morning. What is God showing his people? What is he showing us through the wilderness years? How does the wilderness experience work toward their freedom and ours? In other words, how does God use the wilderness to set us free? Those are the questions I want us to be swimming in. I want to I move in two steps. What the wilderness shows us about us and what the wilderness shows us about God. I want to begin by reading the opening of this story. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. And I'm going to read the first couple of scenes starting in verse... Um, 22 of Exodus chapter 15, then I'm going to read all the way through Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. Then we'll pause. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, They couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. That means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elim, And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, no relation to what you're thinking, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. 
And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want us to see first what the wilderness shows us about us. And I'm going to draw some points out of what we just said here. But before, or what I just read here, but before I draw any points out of it, I just want to retell this story to you. I want to try to help these details land on you in the way the story should. Remember, where the, remember this context. Israel is setting out now from the Red Sea. What they've just seen is God defeat the entire army of the most powerful nation they had ever seen on their behalf. It's hard to imagine the relief and joy they would have felt, not just, not just at what happened, that they're now free when before they were in bondage. That would be good enough. But at how it had happened, they'd just walked through the ocean on dry ground between massive walls of water held back specifically for them. They've got the promised land out in front of them. It's a good land, they've been told, full of milk and honey, meaning it's fruitful and plentiful. It's easy to imagine that first day after they set out from the Red Sea as a happy one, as a day when everybody's excited, they're celebrating. You can imagine them walking and talking and singing and dancing, kids playing, people in a good mood, helping one another along, the young helping the older, everybody, everybody being for one another and upbeat. This is like the first day of a, of a long car trip on a vacation, right? Everybody's just jazzed about it. They probably went to bed that night worn out, the good kind of tired, you know, that comes after a long day on which you did things you were happy about. And they woke up ready for day two. Maybe the same spirit starts day two, but as they keep moving, and you have to figure at some point, everybody else is just carrying along, but some particularly type A leaders are paying attention to resources, and they're noticing, you know, we haven't seen any water yet. And uh, that water we brought from Egypt, it's running low. They can't just be lighthearted and happy anymore. They're paying attention. Day two keeps going, and no more water. Surely it's only a matter of time, they probably think. Let's just keep moving. But another day finishes, another night time, another morning on the third day. By this point, we have to assume there was no more water. Everybody's thirsty. Have you ever been thirsty? I mean, really thirsty. I haven't. I mean the kind of thirsty where your mouth is completely dry and your tongue feels swollen and your lips are cracked and parched. The kind of thirsty whereby you don't see anything about your life except your need for water. It is that basic of a need. And when you've been wandering around in a hot desert, completely dry, with no hope of water anywhere near you, you don't think about anything else but finding water now. They'd gone three days and found no water, and then they come to a place called Marah. Finally. You wonder how excited they must have been to see it. You know, was it one of the kids who spots the palm trees or whatever around that water? Was it, was it some scout they'd sent out? Yeah, who knows? We aren't told that. But somebody was the first to lay eyes on Marah. And you could imagine how joyful they were, how they came running back to the crowd telling them, we found it. There's water. Come on, let's go. And everybody tears off after it. And then they get there, the object of their all-consuming passion. They dip their hands into the water, their lips dry begging for it take a big swallow and then they find out it's disgusting 
This water's bitter. We don't know exactly why, but it was undrinkable. It was bad enough that it was undrinkable by people who'd been in the desert for three days without anything to drink. And you can understand, putting yourself in their shoes while we're told next that they grumbled against Moses. Don't forget that word. They grumbled. It won't be the last time. This time, their understandable grumbling leads Moses to pray for God's help. He cries out to the Lord, and we're told the Lord gives him a log to throw into the water. Now, kids, listen up here. How many of you have ever thrown a stick into water? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you guys have ever thrown a stick into, like, really muddy, nasty-looking water? Yeah, I have. Have you ever seen a stick hit muddy, nasty water and turn that water into really clear, cool water? drinkable water. Has that ever happened for you? No. I have one hand out there, but I'm, I'm doubting the source. Uh, so so that's, this isn't supposed to work. It's not supposed to work. God gives him a completely arbitrary command. This water's undrinkable, so throw that stick in there. Huh? And yet when he does it, it turns the water into something sweet, into just what they were needing. Why would he do that? Why would he do it like this? He's showing them he will provide that he's the reason that they'll have what they need. That isn't all he's showing them, though. Fast forward just a bit. They set out from another place full of water, this place called Elim that they came to next. They set out from Elim. They enter another part of the wilderness called the wilderness of sin. Again, that doesn't mean actual, doesn't mean what we mean by sin. It's just a place name. It's now been several weeks since they left Egypt, based on the calendar here. So they've been out there a while, but still, I mean, two or three weeks. It wasn't that long ago. It's been two or three weeks, four weeks maybe, since they saw God unravel creation over the heads of their enemies. Since they saw God fill their hands with the wealth of that land. Since they saw God part the sea before their feet. That was a few weeks back. That was then. Now they're grumbling again against Moses and Aaron. If their response to the water was understandable, maybe even forgivable, their response this time is meant to shock us. Read verse 3 again. The people of Israel said to them, to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots, whatever that is, and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out in this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You see what they're doing? Does this sound as familiar to you as it does to me? They're forgetting what slavery was like. They're comparing the worst about their situation now to the best about their situation then. They're hungry now. That's not good. That's a real problem. And they're out in the middle of nowhere where they can't grow anything. So I don't mean to minimize the problem they're faced with. I'm not pleasant to be around on an empty stomach either. That's what they know about now. We're hungry. But look what, what they know, how, how what they know about now affects their view of then, how it affects their memory. What are they locking in on? When they think of Egypt, in this moment, Egypt for them is summed up by meat pots and bread. Uh, granted, everything we read about their life in Egypt did, mentioned nothing about any sort of food shortage, so probably they did have enough to eat. That part of their bondage was, shall we say, a highlight. 
Of course, they were doing backbreaking work every day, lethal work. Of course, they saw none of the benefits of their labor. They didn't get to enjoy any of it. It was all for people who had the power to keep them in bondage. Of course, they, they, they didn't have any freedom to make choices about what's best for their lives. True. And yeah, they woke up and faced every day under cruel masters who beat them and killed them at will for hundreds of years. Oh, and, and sure, Pharaoh had given his people a license to kill their baby boys, which they did by throwing them into the river. But boy, those meat pots were delicious. And friends, it's easy to pick on them. But I think we have to admit, surely, how much of our own contentment struggles we can see in the Israelites here. Our experience of life now is always going to be a mixed bag. We're going to have some things about our life that we like and some things about our life that we don't, that we wish would change. And all of us are going to be tempted always to emphasize the things we don't like more than the things that we do. What we don't have more than what we do have. I think that's an important point as an aside. But I think the main point to take here is even more important. Even more significant than Israel dealing with discontent, a discontent that's familiar, that looks like mine. The biggest point we're supposed to see here is that Israel is forgetting who God is to them. That they are actually identifying with Egypt here rather than God and his people. Look what they say in verse 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. In other words, would that we had gotten what they got. Would that we had been among them, of them, with them. They want what Egypt got. They're identifying with them, not with God and his people. Bottom line, he's against us just as he was against them. That's what they think. They're already forgetting who God has been for them and treating him like they have no history together. Like he hasn't just moved heaven and earth to show the world who he is and whom he loves. In chapter 17, which we aren't covering this morning, the same pattern gets repeated again. Once again, they're without water. Once again, they're grumbling. And there Moses asks him, why do you put the Lord to the test? In other words, How is he still on probation? How are you still wondering who he is to you? Why are you still asking, in their own words, chapter 17, verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? They're living like that's an open question. Three weeks after walking across the Red Sea behind a pillar of fire. I see myself here too. Last week, uh, in our family, we like to watch old cowboy shows sometimes because they're great. We watched one that's become one of my favorites. I came to it later in life, but, uh, but now I love it. It's called The Big Country. And it's a time commitment. It's over two hours long, so be warned. But it's awesome. You will not be sorry. I think I've maybe mentioned it before in a, in a sermon, so some of this might sound familiar to some of you guys. The Big Country. It's a little disorienting because in The Big Country, the villains at least for most of the movie, are Burl Ives, you know, Sam the Snowman from Rudolph, Burl Ives, and Lucas McCain from The Rifleman. That's another old Western show. I mean, it's a lot of blank stares. You guys need to get out more. Chuck Connors, yeah, he's the bad guy. Anyway, anyway, that was really disorienting for my family to see. But 
the, the, the movie's phenomenal. It's got an all-star cast. Gregory Peck is the main, is the main actor. Um, and the story is of, of a guy from the East, Gregory Peck, coming out West to marry his girl who he'd met in the East and who's from out West, and he's going to come out there and be a rancher. Well, he gets out there in his, in his funny city clothes, and they start to pick on him. They want to put him on the roughest stallion and see if he can get how long he can stay on it. They challenge him to a couple of different fights, and he doesn't want to take them. He's not going to play by their rules. He doesn't have anything to prove, he thinks. And he loses his girl over it, right? His girl wants him to stand up, to fight for him, to fight for her. They're challenging you. You've got to prove yourself. This is the West. This is how it works out here. And her more reasonable friend, who sees that this man has a quiet strength, that he has nothing to prove, that he isn't actually a coward... This man that she should know by now. Her friend asks of her, how many times does the man have to win you? How about that for a line? I think that's, that's the question that's being raised by this story. How many times does God have to win you? It's a question for Israel and for us. It goes straight to the heart of why Israel was given this Passover meal to celebrate every single year because constantly they were going to be tempted to forget who God had been for them. It's why we're given communion to celebrate when we gather for worship because constantly we're tempted to forget who God has been for us. We will see the worst of our lives and and judge God by it rather than seeing the whole history that we have with him and trusting him in the light of what we wish were different. We're always going to be tempted, in other words, to keep God on probation, to be asking, what have you done for me lately? And I believe God has brought them into the wilderness and brings us to our own sorts of thirst and hunger to show them and to show us something about ourselves. He's showing them that their hearts are still fickle. They don't trust him. They don't know him, not yet. We'll say a lot more about this in coming weeks, but I do want to at least mention, before we move to the second point, that in the story about the water, God speaks to them about statutes and rules that he's going to give them, good commands that he calls on them to obey, opportunities for them to trust him and his knowledge of what's best, for them to take themselves out of the driver's seat of their lives and all the pressure and stress that that brings and just to trust him. And obey. And when he gives them these commands and says, if you obey them, I won't bring diseases on you, he he identifies himself in verse 26 as the Lord, your healer. God is showing them something about themselves because he wants to heal them. Because he knows that as long as they trust themselves more than they trust him, they will not be healed. And they will not be free. Times of difficulty, what you might call our wilderness, will often be where God shows us we don't yet trust him like we thought we did. That we still need to be healed. And that brings us to what the wilderness shows us about God. And we've been focused so far about what the wilderness shows us about us. Think of that part as the diagnosis. But the Lord is a healer. Verse 26 says that. The Lord is a healer. He doesn't just shine a spotlight on problems. He has done the work that's necessary to solve them. And the main focus of this story is not what God is showing Israel about Israel, but what he's showing Israel about himself. That's always been the point of Exodus, showing who he is. Earlier, he was showing that to Egypt. 
And now he's focusing on Israel. You might expect, after all this grumbling, that God would be angry. Instead, look at how he responds in verse 4. God promises grace upon grace. I want to read verse 4 to 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, right after this grumbling, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. That's how he responds to their complaining. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it'll be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's still proving himself. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. What did Israel think was going to happen then? And as soon as Aaron spoke, the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And he speaks. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take each an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, a measurement that, that was common to them, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. God is going to feed them from the sky. He's going to do it every day. And through feeding them, he's going to show them again. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord, your God. God is showing them that they can trust him. But what I want you to notice, this is, this is where we really want to dig in. What I want you to notice is not just that they can trust him, but how he's going to show them, how he's going to train them to trust in him rather than themselves. Pick back up in verse 19. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it, any of this food, over till morning. In other words, whatever you gather, you're going to eat that day. You will go to sleep with nothing. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. 
On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Do you see what God is doing here? Yes, he's showing them that they can trust him. Yes, he's giving them everything that they need, each according to his appetite and according to his household. But he's only giving it to them every day for that day. In other words, God is not letting them stockpile. It turns sour. It gets infested. It melts away when you try to bank on it. And the only day that that doesn't happen is a day that reinforces the same big point. God wants you to rest in him. This is a day where you'll have what you need without doing a thing for it. Store it up on on the day before and you'll have everything you need on that day. Everything God is doing here, everything about what Moses just told them is reinforcing the point that God provides and only God provides and everything always depends on him. Now think, there's a cynical way to read this restriction. There is a way to read it and think, well, God is just making them live in insecurity. He's tormenting them. You could take this daily ration as God basically keeping them off balance, on their toes, destabilizing them, kind of like a harsh interrogator might do of a prisoner, you know, with with leaving the lights on at weird times or strobe lights or loud music played just when they're about to go to sleep or these tormenting tactics. You could see God doing that, not letting them rest. I mean, every night they go to sleep with nothing. Why is he keeping them off balance? But, But friends, it's actually just the opposite that he's doing here. He's trying to train them that the only way to rest is by refocusing where that rest comes from. He doesn't want them resting in material circumstances that they can touch and see. He wants them to rest in him. He wants them focused not on what they can glean and store up for themselves, but on who he is to them as the giver of every good gift. One writer puts it like this. He said that every evening, Israel went to sleep, represented with the same condition that led them to their fear and complaining before. The same thing that led them to grumbling. We have no food. What are we going to do? They go to sleep with every single night. Why? Not to keep them insecure, but friends, to teach them that they were secure. See, you're not wrong to want to be secure in life. That's a natural desire. God put that desire in you. But you have to be so careful where you seek security. See, as it it is for Israel, they seek security in material possessions. Even just the basics of food that they store up. They'll rest when they see they have what they need for the next day. That's why they fly off the handle so quickly and why they try to build up a reserve of this bread called manna. 
See, even though God was giving them these gifts, they were ultimately just relying on themselves. Their own ability to gather, their own ability to plan. This is how much I think we'll need. We'll be safe when we have this much. And what God knows is that so long as they're chasing security that they can see and touch, that they can establish on their terms, they are stuck in a rat race that binds you and torments you and brings out all the worst in you. Here's another way to say it. Friends, so long as your security is tied to circumstance, something you can see and, dare I say, control, you will never be free. You will live in bondage and fear. And that's not the freedom God wants for his people. He is our healer. And this is the sickness that he's targeting. When God provides daily, only daily, but always daily, he is showing Israel and showing us that we can rest in him. Our security is personal. And that's a lesson that he's still teaching us today. But now, friends, with a greater bread than Israel ever had access to. Earlier in the service, when we were celebrating communion, I read from John chapter 6. It's a famous discourse that Jesus gives. It's known as the bread of life discourse. It starts just after Jesus had fed people who were hungry in a wilderness. 5,000 of them, starving. Jesus takes just basically a glorified snack and divides it and divides it and divides it and feeds them as if from the sky and everyone eats their fill. But you know what happens the next day? They wake up hungry and they come looking for Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you're coming to me not because you saw the signs, not because in other words, you know who I am, but because you want some more food. They take his point and ask him, well, what should we do then? And Jesus says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, that you believe in me. Jesus is reorienting their view of security from the food that they want for their bellies to this person standing right in front of them saying, here I am. He goes on to tell them, I am the bread of life. See, you want more food. Your fathers ate food in the wilderness. They had manna. But you know what happened to them? Not only did they get hungry every time after they ate it, You know what happened at the end of their lives? They died. They ate their fill of manna for their whole life, and they still died. And Jesus says in the passage I read earlier this morning, I have come to give you a bread that you can eat and not die. I've come to give you a security that you can't even imagine yet. See, they couldn't. They were still focused on the daily and that's why when Jesus finishes his discourse on, this, on himself as the bread of life, giving his own flesh so that people could live, many of them, even his own disciples, leave him. They don't want what he's offering. They want what they want already, not what he's trying to refocus them on, except for a small few. A few of his disciples stay. Jesus asks them, well, Are you going to leave too? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's in Peter's answer, what brought him to faith in Jesus as his only hope is a kind of desperate daily despair of any other option. He's done thinking his security can be tied to another meal. He knows he needs more. And he's focused on the one and only one who can give him hope in life and in death. How do we get where Peter got? How do we get where we hear the promises of Jesus to be the bread of life that satisfies and secures all who feast on it and not have our heads turned by other options but rest here in what he's given? How do we get there? Friends, I think that we only get there through the wilderness. Only through the wilderness where we know hunger and thirst and desperate daily dependence. Only in the wilderness can we learn the truth about ourselves and about God and about what it is to be truly free. Our instinct when we're faced with difficulty is to ask why. And the answer to that question is going to be different depending on the person and depending on the factors involved. But what you can't afford to miss from this story, what it is here to teach you, is that there is always, for God's people, one underlying theme. God has led you into this difficulty, into this wilderness, to help you. He has led you here to teach you the truth that will set you free. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn this lesson. That you would free us from our self-reliance that keeps us in bondage and give us the only freedom that is real and lasting. Thank you for Jesus who has come that we might know freedom. Help us now to live in in the midst of it with hope and joy. We pray in his name, amen.